Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Um, folks, here we are. Here's Ben. Here's Maya. And it is first Tuesday at the hideout in Chicago. And we are having the conversation. Let's talk about it. Okay. Is this thing working? Can you guys hear me? So the chief judge has arrived, uh, and I think he'll be out here in a minute or two. But in the meantime, uh, thank you all for coming out again uh, this month. We're so happy to be back in person, and uh, luckily the hideout has this amazing patio, so we can continue the show outdoors in a safer way. Hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to keep doing that until it gets really cold. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I guess I'll take a moment to just... Uh, make an announcement and you all some of you might already know this but I'm actually this is my last week at the Chicago Reader and I am now transitioning to a job at Injustice Watch uh, where I'll be a senior reporter um, writing mostly about judges actually so uh, this is this is right up my new alley and uh, but Ben and I will continue the show um, in person or online or whatever it is that the pandemic um, might throw in front of us um, and uh, yeah, so thank you for continuing to support us, and hopefully we can get Judge Evans out here. <laughs> he went in there. Do you want me to go in? And does he know that this is happening out here? I'm serious. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm sure he knows. I'll grab him. Yeah. But that was nice of you to offer to you go in and get the judge. Ben, why don't you tell uh, tell folks what your history is with the, the judge? judge and how long you've known him in politics? Well, uh, he, he was. I'm trying to think about this. Uh, here he comes. I'll tell him. I'll wait for him to sit down. All right. What's going on? It's been a while. Yeah, it's yeah. good to see you. Yeah. So, so one's, one's, yeah, yeah, I was going to, um, uh, when I met him, he was Alderman Timothy Evans. Now he's Judge Timothy Evans. And um, I was just, I think it was uh, Commissioner Miller I was telling us to, that I moved to Chicago uh, in 1981, and you were already, I think, in your eighth year as an alderman. Isn't that something? Uh, from the fourth ward, you inherited that job uh, from Claude Holman, the previous alderman. Yeah. And I think you and I are probably the only two people here today who know who Claude Holman is. <laughs> and so, uh, Judge, there's a lot of judicial issues we want to talk to you about, court issues, policing issues, uh, criminal justice issues. But if you would just indulge this old reporter a little bit, uh, with a trip down memory lane, and Maya's been very gracious to allow me these. Uh, so you know I was a big supporter of Harold Washington, I and I know you were a big supporter of Harold Washington, too. Absolutely. 
the best and the brightest. No yeah. question about it. So you look at Chicago now, where Chicago is today in uh, the year 2021, and it's been over 30 years since Harold died. And just the most general way, we'll start with this. Do you think Chicago has regressed politically from where we were uh, when uh, Harold Washington was the mayor? Or do you think we've improved, we've progressed? I have my opinions. I would love to hear yours. Let me put it this way. I, I wouldn't call it regression. But I would say this, um, Harold Washington expected to be mayor for 20 years. And I had an opportunity to talk to him about those things that he dreamed of. And I can assure you that the city of Chicago, as we sit here tonight, is not what he dreamed of. I can tell you that. He was interested in senior citizens, he was interested in the young people. He was interested in open government, uh, not, not government that had to be sort of dragged to the um, window so that people could see in. But he wanted government that was open and above board. And he, he kept saying, oh, here are the records, open sesame. Come right in and take a look at it. That, that was the way uh, Harold viewed this city. He loved the city, loved the people. He loved to dance. Uh, you know, and I, I can tell you, I'm expected to know how to sing and dance. You see how I look. But I can't sing and I can't dance. Harold could do both. And he loved it, loved it. And uh, so um, he used to say to me, uh, Ben, um, how will I be remembered? Will I be remembered? as the guy who wanted to change things for the better. And uh, I can recall, for example, we were on a trip to um, Asia. And we were going to establish sister city relationships in uh, Osaka, Japan. And we were going to uh, establish a sister city relationship with Shenyang in China. and. Um, as we walked through this big area, huge area in Beijing, uh, I heard him say, and he wasn't talking to me particularly, he just was talking to those who were walking with him. I, I wonder if I will be remembered this way in a mausoleum, just, just sitting there in a glass box, or will people remember what I tried to do? And I think he would, yes, be thrilled to know that his name is attached to the Harold Washington Library, for example. Uh, we talked about that. As chairman of the Finance Committee, I was able to help get that through. Mm -hmm. But I, I think if somebody told him, look, Harold, they're dying in the street. They, uh, the young people have very little to do. Gangs have... have push them to a point where uh, they can be seated on a porch and get shot, uh, that they can be out playing uh, like those kids out there, and, and we not know whether they're safe or not. That's, not. that's not what Harold Washington thought this city would be. Now, um, he was not naive and he was not Pollyannish. He knew it was not going to be 
easy, but he, as he told us he'd be here for 20 years, yeah. he believed it. He well, believed he wasn't. It. And it was almost as though uh, from the moment he died, and this is me speaking, and get your thoughts on this, from the moment he died, everybody who was opposed to him, including the corporate elite of the city of Chicago and the editorial boards of the city of Chicago, did everything they could to make sure that we would never have another Harold Washington in the fifth floor of City Hall. That's what I believe, and I believe they have been successful for the last 30-odd years. Do you share my belief, or do you vehemently disagree with me and think I'm being unfair to all these people? Go. Well, I, I, hope, <laughs> I hope you're being unfair to them, Ben. I, I would hate to think that um, that happened. I will say this. I'll put it a different way than you. Oh, you will. Um, I think people saw a different Harold as he exited the scene than they saw the Harold Washington who arrived. They were being told that uh, he was going to be unfair, that he was going to uh, treat others like he had been treated, that somehow he was going to, oh, well, uh, since he's from the south side of the west side, he's only going to be providing services to the south side and the west side. No, no, he, he was vehemently trying to tell the world, anybody who would listen, hey, no, 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 I'm the mayor for all of you. And he used to say something like this, Ben and my, he used to say, uh, you can run and hide from my fairness, but my fairness will find you wherever you are. And he meant it. He meant it, and he showed it, and that's the guy they missed when he passed away. Well, thank you for uh, the trip down memory lane. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about the present moment. Uh, you were, if you, you were don't a mind, baby. Ben, you, you were she a wasn't baby. Even born. I, she wasn't yeah, even born. This is before I was born. So you're looking at us like we're <laughs> ancient. I have to listen to this every week. All right. Well, so. th th this is this is my buddy. He, he's the only one here who's old enough like me to remember these days. Well, all the more reason why I'd like you. So there's a lot of people here who may not know you from those days. There's a lot of people here who also may not be familiar with what you actually do. So would you mind explaining to us what exactly your role of being the chief judge means? What does your job entail? What does your day-to-day -day look like? Okay, uh, that is fair. Uh, <laughs> as opposed to the questions I asked. <laughs> uh, as chief judge, I supervise, generally speaking, about 400 judges and somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 employees. And um, we provide court services, we provide interp uh, interpreter services, we provide uh, services for probation people with adult probation, juvenile probation, and social service probation. Uh, we work and interact with the county board. We, we ask the county board, for example, for services that we need, and, and there are several county board members here, and you know they are my favorite people in the audience. You do know that, uh, because they keep us going. Um, they, they, they supply what we need most directly. And yeah, we're, we are state employees assigned to work in Cook County. So all of the employees I just described to you are employed in Cook County, but they're considered state employees. And um, 
we, um, we provide for the criminal court that you read and hear about. We provide for all the civil courts that you hear and read about. We have 13 sites throughout Cook County. One site is the Daly Center. Most people know about the Daly Center, but we have 13, not as tall as that, not as grand as that, but we have um, facilities in uh, the suburbs, for example, Second District in Skokie. We have uh, Rolling Meadows in, in uh, the Third District and so forth and so on throughout the county from the north to the west to the south. And uh, we have courts in each one of those facilities that I'm talking about. The suburban courts do much more than just provide court services. Uh, they provide universal county services in those uh, county facilities that I'm talking about that are in the suburban community. But uh, what we want to do is let the people of our community know that we work for them, that this is their court that we are blessed to be able to serve in. And we want fairness, we want commitment to justice, we want um, people to understand what some don't understand, uh, that we believe in the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, the state Constitution, and the statutes and the cases that we have to apply the facts to on a day-by-day -day basis. And um, we have input from these probation officers, for example, that I just described. They are um, members of my office, and I supervise them, but they help us try to assist people who have been arrested, for example, and people who have an opportunity to clean up their record, to be what they always should have been. Uh, we believe in a, a, a second chance approach to um, the Circuit Court of Cook County. And for example, um, we have restorative justice courts uh, in Inglewood and in North Lawndale and Avondale and one in uh, uh, the facility at 26 in California. And there, for example, healing is the key, not punishment. Second chances to turn people's life around. And uh, Maya and Ben, um, uh, I would be normally celebrating the one-year anniversary of our restorative justice court in Avondale. And... Um, uh, we would be talking about the participants that we had been able to turn their lives around. Uh, there, um, we ask them to admit what they've done wrong. We ask them to empathize and understand the impact that they had on the people they victimized. And we ask them to prepare a repair of harm agreement that does two things. It repairs the harm to the victim that they victimized. It might be an apology. It might be uh, uh, replacing something that was taken. But we also have a repair of harm agreement that makes them better. If they're addicted to drugs, they have to go to deal with that. If they have a mental health problem, they have to go and deal with the mental health problem. And um, if they don't have a GED, they don't have a way to get a legitimate job, we help them to get that. And when 
and if they complete everything in the restorative justice commitment in this repair of harm agreement, then we dismiss the case against them, we expunge the record, and they come back to the community as a contributing citizen instead of a, a convicted felon. And what I am saying is that one year ago, August 3rd, one year ago, we established this court in Avondale. And um, the coordinator and the judge and our team members said, okay, uh, we're going to celebrate on August 3rd. I said, no, I'm going to be with Ben and Maya. Okay. And they said, yeah, okay, we're going to be with you. So this is the coordinator. Stand up, please. <laughs> Restorative Justice Court. I think she came to see if I was telling the truth. <laughs> she's uh, working on her Ph.D., and, and uh, she's the coordinator and totally committed to these young people. I say young people because they are the ages of 18 and 26 in that category. But they have the same problems as people who are adolescents. And it's my job as chief judge, among the other jobs mm -hmm. that I've described, to get them to where they need to be. Well, so that that's a phenomenal explanation of the work of the office. That's I'm sure that lots of people here didn't know about the uh, Restorative Justice Court and the other programs you mentioned. But I'm also curious about um, your relationship with your constituents. So yeah. most uh, elected official, you know, kind of um, the, the top of the ticket of county government are folks who are elected directly by us, the voters. But you are in a unique position where you are elected by the judges that we elect. Yeah. So that is your, that is, that is, those are the people, those are your, that's your electorate, that's who you have, uh, you know, that's who you have to thank for continuing to be in your job. So what is the, what do they want from you? What do your constituents expect from you? What do they want from you? How come they keep reelecting you? Okay, let me, let me clarify that slightly. Because um, while they elect me to be chief judge, the public, the people sitting out here, elect me to be judge first. I could not be chief judge unless they elected me to be judge. And that's every six years we have to run for retention, not re-election, retention, and that's something else if you want to discuss that we can. Every six years we run for retention. And during that six-year period, if someone wants to be chief judge, that person has to submit his credentials every three years. And so every three years, um, you have an opportunity to be elected chief judge, and it's a three-year term. So in my case, um, I have been chief judge, being reelected seven times for the last 20 years. Um, and um, my work is not done. We have much more to do. And um, so, Judge, let me ask yeah. you this. Yeah. So when, when, when you're campaigning uh, as an alderman uh, to get people to vote for you as alderman, or you're campaigning as a Cook County Board Commissioner to get people to vote for you for Cook County Board, uh, I understand the kind of uh, rhetoric that you use, the kind of promises that you make, the kind of goals that you set. Uh, when you're campaigning to be the chief judge, 
and your constituents aren't the people that are sitting around here, but they're freaking judges. Uh, what kind of rhetoric do you use? What promises do you make? What goals do you s establish to get them to vote for you? Well, um, that's an interesting question. I have to be very careful about how I you answer very that question. Um, no, no. In, in fairness, uh, it's my job to remind them who we really do work for and to remind them that we are bound by the canons of ethics, for example. And most people don't know what those canons of ethics are. For example, uh, I have to remind them that, yeah, we're independently elected judges, but there are certain things we can do and certain things we can't do. Something we can't do is we can't comment on pending or impending cases. That's a shock to most judges who get elected. For example, when the O.J. Simpson case was, was being talked about by everybody, and you know we had some very vigorous debates about that case, what I'm saying is our canons of ethics prevented a judge from discussing that case even though it was a pending or impending case in an entirely different jurisdiction. Most people don't realize that. So uh, my neighbors ask me all the time, well, Tim, um, uh, somebody um, gave me a ticket out there, and um, you know, they, they, maybe they want to get I hope they don't want to get around and ask me what I can do about the ticket. But what, what, they, what they mainly say to me is, you know, at the time I parked there, uh, there was no sign saying no parking and that type of thing. And they don't realize I can't talk to them about their individual case because the judge I supervise will likely be their judge, and I don't want that judge hearing what I have to say about my neighbor getting a ticket. So, uh, yeah, I, I have to talk to them about all kinds of things like that. And uh, I have to tell them, for example, that even though we're state employees, our first line of defense for what we need to run a good court system is with our colleagues that you refer to in the county board. Mm -hmm. And their job, among in many other things, is to supply what we need to provide a court system for their constituents and my constituents so that fairness can prevail. It's the same fairness that Harold talked about. It's the same one in these constitutional provisions that I'm talking about, but it's real when you become a judge because you take an oath to follow that law. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that they understand because I talk to them quite often, but some elected officials don't understand that. Yeah. But, but and, and undoubtedly, we'll get to that before the evening. Oh, so, we'll get into it. <laughs> so, so there's as an elected official, there's stuff that you tell constituents or voters to try to convince them to vote for you. There's promises you make, and there's priorities you articulate. But there's also things that the constituents will make demands about. They will ask you for. Yeah. So, what do your constituents want? What do they ask you for? What kind of promises are they looking for when you're making your pitch to to be reelected again? What do they want? I think what they want is for us to follow our constitutional mandate. We have to protect them from the overzealous executive branch. The we judges, you mean? 
the judges have to protect them from the overzealous executive branch. I'm not talking about the judicial branch right now. I'm talking about the executive branch. You're talking about the, the president the, of the Cook County Board. The president of the Cook County Board, the mayor of the city of Chicago, the employees of the city of Chicago, those are the executive branch people. And part of our job is to protect the constituents, all of our people, from improper conduct by the executive branch. And likewise, to protect them from improper laws passed by the legislative branch. And, and yeah, you might say, well, that's some tension between the people I just told you who help supply us with funding and the laws that they pass. But my job is to protect them. If there's a law that's passed that is not going to be constitutional, my job is to say so, and the people that I supervise, our job is to say so. But I'm talking about the judges who are your constituents, who are re-electing you. Like, what do, when you are asking for them to select you once again to be the chief judge, what, are they, what do they expect from you? What are their demands on oh. you as their elected leader? Okay. That's what that, I mean. That's fair. What, what they would like to do, I have to disabuse them of that possibility. Uh, <laughs> Let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, let's say some, some uh, lawyer has been practicing law in uh, the law division. Uh, Multi-million dollar cases, um, airplane crashes, uh, railroad collisions, um, all that kind of thing. Their name in the paper every, every day because they're the lawyer uh, who handles all these great cases. I have to say to them, yeah, but first of all, we have to train you not to be an advocate, but to be an impartial arbiter. And I have to tell them, that's my job, to train them how to be an impartial arbiter. I have to tell them, hey, you may yesterday have handled a multi-million dollar case, but tomorrow, as the judge, you're going to learn how to handle traffic cases. And it's not that traffic cases are not important. It is that's where we train them to be judges. And we have all of the assistance for them. The mentors are in traffic court. Uh, we go over the cases with them in traffic court and so forth. And so uh, we start all the new judges there. So that's what I tell them. Okay, we're not going to put you in a circumstance where you can't handle it. Mm because we don't want you to be embarrassed, yeah, but we don't want you to mess up somebody's case. So that's what they expect from me, to teach them to be a good judge. And I, I start with a training process. We have judges' schools, so they never take a case until they've gone through and passed judges' school. So that's the first thing. I have to teach them how to be good judges. Secondly, I have to tell them, yeah, you used to be the great guy in the law division, and maybe you handled all of the big cases at 26 in California, but that's not where you're going to be assigned as a new judge. <laughs> but, Judge, who's going to vote for you with that kind of pitch? I, I, I mean, I I'm, not gonna, if, I'm like, I want the other job. I'm not going <laughs> to vote for the guy who says, I'm going to relegate you to traffic court and you're yeah. going to like it. And, and that's, that's a reasonable, reasonable reaction. And you might have expected me to worry about that 20 years ago yeah. when I started making that pitch. But 
they come to realize, oh, my God, he's telling the truth. Or they come to realize you're going to be there for so long that ultimately you're going to be the guy that gets them out of traffic court. Well, that, and that's a possibility. I hope they realize that. But I want you to know this. I'm the longest serving chief judge in the history of Cook County. So there's never been a judge who served as chief judge as long as me. So no, they don't know how long I'll be chief judge. But they know this. I'm not going to lie to them. I'm not going to buy their vote. I'm not, and by the way, this vote that I'm talking about is a secret vote. Uh, they, they, they go behind closed doors and vote for whoever they want to to be chief judge. What happens to the guy that loses to you every time? <laughs> Let's talk about that. That's a fair question. <laughs> He's working at the hideout right now. <laughs> no, great job. Yeah. Uh, most people assume that if you attempt to hit the king in the head, you have to hit the king in the head and be deadly. Otherwise, you run the risk of the king doing something back to you. The people who have run against me are some of my best friends. I know it sounds ridiculous. The first time I ran, there were five candidates against me. The candidate who was closest to my vote, who almost defeated me, was a candidate by the name of Monteleon. In three years, with my system being fair and honest, guess who placed my name in nomination to be reelected chief judge? Monteleon. That's my system. Uh, and, and right down the line, the guys who run against me, the, the, the last one um, who ran um, was a, um, a great lawyer in the law division. She's still a great lawyer and judge in the law division. Before that, the person who ran against me had been an alderman before he became a, a judge in the chancery division. He stayed into the chancery division until he retired. Uh, the person who ran against me before that was the presiding judge of the law division that I appointed. He ran against me anyway, and after I defeated him, he was still the presiding judge of the law division. So That's the way I do it. So, Judge, when you, when you said that thing... Uh, that I really fasten on in my head about you have to stand up to the executive from time to time. Absolutely. And that's just a perfect transition to where I want to go. So the executive could be Tony Preckwinkle, president could be, could of your be. old friend from the Fourth Ward, uh, or the executive could be uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, the, could the be. current mayor. Yes, that's true. And what I assume those judges want is a, a forceful spokesperson at the top that when they feel that Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Police Chief David Brown are using the judges as their whipping boys to make them the scapegoats for all the crime in the city of Chicago, they expect Timothy C. Evans, the chief judge, to stand up for them. I assume that's what you were getting at. I'm giving you a practical application. Am I correct in my assumption? Uh, you are correct at your assumption. And, but I don't take it personally. Uh, I respect uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. I respect uh, Superintendent David Brown. Um, they just don't understand what it is that we have to remind them of. 
And some people don't understand that. And, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that because I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's take uh, Mr. Um, Superintendent uh, Brown first before we get to Lori Lightfoot. His officers go out and they attempt to solve crime. And, and they have a horrible problem trying to solve the crime in this city. Uh, they don't have everything they need. And, and if you want to talk about some of the things that I think they need, we're d willing to do that. But they don't have that. And so they are on the hot seat every Monday. They say, hey, why didn't you stop uh, all of these shootings? Why didn't you stop all of these killings? What, you're, the, you're the superintendent. He says, oh, well, it's, it must be the people that the judges are letting out that we arrest. He doesn't say, well, you know, the law says that Evans is not supposed to do this. The law says, and I think he knows this, and I have to keep reminding him. The law says, no, we don't assume the guy you arrested was guilty. We assume the guy you arrested is innocent. That's the oath I have to take. And I have to remind him, as I have, the assumption is whoever you arrested is entitled to be out that same day or the next day on bail. That's what the Constitution says. That's what both the state Constitution and the U.S. Constitution says. They say that in bright red letters. The only exceptions are these. If the crime is a felony, and if a crime has taken place that has these following three characteristics. One, that the proof that the arrestee did it is evident, proof evident. The second is the presumption that he is guilty is great. The third is that he pre presents a clear and present danger, threat, to somebody else. That's the person who you have to keep in the lockup somewhere while his case was pending. And that is the toughest thing that we in this community can do, to take your liberty from you just because you've been accused by somebody. No matter whether they believe it or not, you've just been accused. And if your name happens to be uh, Superintendent Brown, your accusation is no greater than anybody else. And the same applies to his boss, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. If, you, if, if the mayor wants to accuse somebody, they still have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and they still have to give somebody the constitutional rights that I'm describing. And that's what they have difficulty, either they have difficulty understanding that, or maybe, just maybe, they need something to say as to why it is that they didn't stop those shootings and those killings. And what I say to you, I've said to Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and I've said that directly to Superintendent Brown in a nice way. I, I'm a nice guy. Everybody knows I'm a nice guy. So I said to them, 
in a nice way. I don't curse. I don't, uh, well, sometimes I shout. But, but, you know, I try not to shout. I try to do it in a way that gets them to understand. And I give them the law. I gave the law that I described to you to Superintendent Brown. I gave more, uh, Mayor Larry Lightfoot the law also. And I gave them to the statistics that go along with it. Not just my statistics, but statistics from independent sources like Loyola University. Yeah. So I give them the basis upon which I make the assumptions that I've uh, shared with, with the two of you. Yeah, it's it's interesting because just um, you've you're now like the leading voice in county government of the, you know, of all the elected officials. You've kind of come out to the forefront as being a proponent of uh, of of the presumption of innocence and 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 the elimination of cash bail, and uh, uh, you've kind of led this effort to 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 have uh, a different way that we think about you know pretrial incarceration, but. I mean, just a few years ago, I think it was like 2017, you were, uh, you were being sued about this by advocates who were saying that the judges in bond court are not letting people out as they're supposed to. They're not following those, like, what it was, whatever it was, 27 different measures, including considering somebody's ability to pay. So, I mean, you were kind of on the hot seat then, and then you passed the order that, uh, that, that specifically told judges they have to consider somebody's uh, you know, m ability to pay the bail, and now you're a leading voice in this, um, the Pretrial Fairness Act with the, that, that's eliminating cash bail in Illinois. What, is your, what are your thoughts about how the politics of all that, like how, th did you think back in 2017 that just in a few short years you'd be, you'd be at the forefront of this thing? Or, um, yeah, I'm just curious to hear uh, your thoughts about how the political landscape around this has changed for you. And, and uh, I thank you for the question because it gives me an opportunity to explain. I wish I could tell you that when you have 400 independently elected judges, you can wave a magic wand and tell them, hey, what you've been doing for the last 50 years, I want you to stop it, and here's the right way to do it. <laughs> no, no, no. It doesn't work like that. What I'm talking to you about, I've been talking to everybody about for the last 20 years that I've been chief judge. And I've been doing it for that 20-year period because prior to that, I was presiding judge of domestic relations division where these cases didn't come before me. That's divorces and custody battles and all that. And then after that, I was presiding judge of the law division, uh, those tough cases that I was telling you about a little earlier. So 20 years ago, when I became chief, one of the first things I wanted to do was to change the way I saw it. And let me, let me just tell you that one of the first things I saw to let me know that, that a change was going to be necessary. At that time, um, bail court, uh, most people call it bail court, uh, was set up this way. The judge was upstairs at 26th in California at criminal court. The lawyers were upstairs with the judge. All the witnesses were upstairs with the judge. And the person who was accused of the crime, the guy who I told you was presumed to be innocent, was on the floor sitting downstairs in an area that was called the bridge. And they, he wasn't alone. He would be down there with 50, 75, 100 other defendants. 
sitting on the floor. And when their name was called, they didn't go upstairs to the, uh, the hearing where the judge was. They stepped up to a camera. Nothing around them, no lawyer standing with them, and all they heard was, is your name Tim Evans? And they would say yes or no. And then everything else would take, care, take place upstairs. It was like a slave ship. And I told my judges it was like a slave ship. The pictures that you have seen of the slave ships coming across the Atlantic is exactly the way it looked downstairs when I saw it 20 years ago. And so I immediately stopped that. I said, oh, no, no, no. We're going to change bail immediately. And I changed bail 20 years ago. So we just been put adding a page and adding a page and trying to get people to understand. When I did that, the sheriff said, hey, Evans. <laughs> and the sheriff was not dart at the time. Uh, he said, Evans, you're making this hard for us. We got to take all these 75 people upstairs and we got to do it by letting them come up the elevator and we got to stand there and make sure they don't escape when down here in the basement we know they can't escape. I said, yeah, that's exactly what you got to do and here's the order. Yeah. And so I've been working on bail reform a long time. And let me just say this. Um, you said I, I'm, I'm the picture of it or I'm the leader of it or whatever. There are people here who also helped to lead it. And one of the guys just became the new public defender, and he's, he's sitting right out there. Give a round of applause to Sharon Mitchell. So I'm not, I may have been alone in it 20 years ago, but I'm not alone in it now. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. You know, you know, I have to say, uh, when I was listening to Maya ask that question, I, f I flash back. Follow me on this. I'm not your therapist, but I'm going to do a little a psychoanalysis here. <laughs> Some Again, people have said yeah, I need a therapist. Yeah. You won't be the first. <laughs> We're the same generation, and I keep saying that because it's really important. I knew your political roots in Chicago. If you had asked me in 1981, would Harold Washington's floor leader been Tim Evans, <laughs> I would have said no way. <laughs> That's Claude Holman, and no one knows who he is. Trust me, Claude Holman was an alderman that was very close to Richard J. Daley. That he was. That and he was. I would never have predicted that you would have been the floor leader. And so I said, I, I'm like, I'm listening to my, I'm like, this is the story of this man's career. Yeah. Well, and, and you evolved as Harold's floor leader. And so then you became a public face, for better or for worse, for you and for the city of independent politics in the city council, even though you came up with Daley and Holman. And now you came, same thing. You go to Cook County Court, you're now the public face. I, I, the irony is just unbelievable. Lori Lightfoot, David Brown, Tony, well, not Tony Prager, we'll leave her out of this one. <laughs> They're bashing you like, like you're a liberal hippie judge who's letting uh, murderers out. And well, you must appreciate the irony of both transitions in your life, right? I, I, I do appreciate that, but... Uh, I, I will say this, uh, the path that I have followed that you just described is a path that was laid out for me long before I came along. It was a guy by the name of Ralph Metcalf. 
he had the same credentials that you're describing. He didn't become a judge, I don't mean that. But I mean he was, quote unquote, in the machine. He was a part of the Democratic Party. And he too left and became uh, a progressive, or, or however you want to characterize us. Ralph Metcalf, but also a guy by the name of Harold Washington <laughs> did exactly the same. He was a precinct captain. His father was a precinct captain. He worked in the same third ward where Ralph Metcalf saw the light. And so Harold did the same. And so I wish I could say to you, Ben, that we all start where we need to start. But the idea that I'd like to have you embrace is not where you start, it's where you end up. That's the key. And if you say I end up on the right side of things, I know I am because I see it every day. And, and I know if we don't change what's going on in this city, we run the risk of more violence and, and more people getting hurt and good people leaving. I, I saw on television yesterday, they were interviewing people and they said, well, if the police can't stop this, then we'll consider leaving. I don't, I don't want the good people to leave. You ask me what Harold would think about it, he wouldn't want to see good people leaving the city because somebody can't stop the violence. And, and now, you and my didn't ask me this. Can I ask myself so that the public will know? Uh, I think, I think that a couple of things are needed to help the police, and I pray for them. I pray for the mayor, I pray for the police. I, I don't, uh, I don't uh, throw them under the bus, I pray for them. But I think, just as they're asking for federal money to bring more law enforcement officers in and all of that, and that's, that's fine if that's what they want to do. But we need them to bring in federal money as well as local money for witness protection, to protect the witnesses who see this crime and who are afraid that they're going to be victimized if we don't protect them. So that's the first thing I would say that they need. Secondly, most of the problems that you see on a day-by-day -day basis is coming from poverty-stricken areas, I'll put it that way. These people um, have no resources. They don't have a way to legitimately provide their economic needs. So some of them work hard, they go out looking for jobs and so forth, but some of them take another route. They take the easy way out. They take somebody else's property. They, they join a gang and they, they do all of those things. So I think we have to deal with this poverty element that I'm talking about. We have to provide resources to these communities. We have to roll back the inequities that have occurred in those communities. What inequities am I talking about? Drawing the uh, mortgage lines in such a way that people can't get mortgages to fix up their property and do for their property what they should be. Redlining. We have to roll all of that back and change all of that. We have to also provide, in my opinion, trauma um, I, I would say trauma-sensitive health care to these individuals. They've been traumatized, and many of them are engaging in trauma now. So we have to provide that. But 
more than anything else, I think we have to find a legitimate pathway for people who live in these communities to make a decent living and to find a way to have upward mobility for everybody in the community. If you do that, then you'll stop the anger and people won't be taking out their, their um, reservations against somebody else. And I think that's what's needed. And now people keep telling me, oh, the, Tim, that's going to be too much money. Compare money for what I'm talking about to the lives that are being lost every day and every night in this city. Mm. That's what I'm saying. Those are the costs if we don't do it. Well, so since you, you guys can clap. Thank you. Uh, so since you brought this up and since, since, since you're basically hinting at systemic issues here and, yes, and, and problems that, that aren't going away, away because poverty isn't going away, um, I mean, historically, at times, judges are part of the problem. Judges, uh, you know, are, can have biases, can have uh, misinterpretations of the law that play out against poor people, black people, queer people, so this this is all you know. This is the, I'm sure this is not new to you. You you're aware of this sure. uh, just as anybody else. So my question is, you know, people have been there's been conversations happening for quite some time about uh, you know transparency and accountability for judges. And uh, one of the problems is that you know we have this judicial inquiry board where technically people can submit their complaints if they've had an experience with a judge where they've experienced biases in the court. I mean. As you know, I've reported on eviction court for several years now. I've seen it myself, and until we had court recording, it was impossible to have a record of this, of the kind of biases people, ex the judges are expressing on the bench as they're ruling on people's cases. So the Judicial Inquiry Board exists. Technically, you can file a complaint, but lots and lots of people never hear anything about what happens there, never get any kind of feedback, and now there's conversations about creating a kind of judicial ombudsman whose job it would be to communicate with people who have issues with the judges in our courts. Uh, would you support that idea, having an ombudsman for the, for the judiciary? Well, um, I have not called it uh, an ombudsman, but I do have such a person, and there, there she sits right there, um, Mary Wisniewski. Would you mind standing, Mary? Mary may not know that's part of her job. A, a part of the problem, and the reason I identify her, as some of you may know, she was um, a great reporter for the Sun-Times, a great reporter for the Tribune, a great reporter for the Chicago um, the, the, the News, all of those. But now we have a kind of ombudsman who can explain to the public what is going on. Let's talk about the Judicial Inquiry Board just for a minute. Uh, it is an entity set up, not at my level, but not at the circuit court level, but at the constitutional level of the Supreme Court. They appoint the members of the JIB. Uh, uh, they decide who's going to be on the commission that the JIB uh, answers to, uh, makes their presentations to, and so forth. And they have their own rules, and, and they have their own mechanism. I, I find it somewhat mysterious, just as you do. I, I, we have had the unpleasant duty of identifying judges from time to time who don't do what they're supposed to do, those canons of ethics that I talked about. They have violated those canons of ethics. And so 
rather than having a situation like some people say exists in the police department where one police officer looks another way, a, a different direction, we as members of the judiciary, we turn those judges in. I've sent those judges to the JIB myself and my executive committee. I, I name presiding judges for each one of the divisions. And so we send them to the JIB ourselves. And we've had judges whose right to be a judge has been removed. We've had judges who've been censured and so forth and so on. So um, if somebody wants to know how that works, they could contact my ombudsman or my assistant. Um, uh, and I guess it's probably going to cost me more money. I guess so. <laughs> I had to be very careful here. Uh, but no, I talked to her about these kinds of things when I hired her, to use her experience. And I asked her this, in talking to the members of the public, not to use our, our lawyer language. I didn't hire a lawyer to do it. I hired an expert who communicates with the public. And she can put it in their language. And so that's what I've done. Maybe I haven't used the term ombudsman, but that's exactly what she does. Now, she has some restraints, too. And I, and, and I, I would have to say, I told you at the beginning, that the canons of ethics prevent me from discussing a pending or impending case. Whatever is bound by me is also binding on her. Any of my employees can't do what I can't do. They, they are restricted too. And so that's one of the things the public doesn't understand. When, when um, some judge makes a ruling, whether he's right or wrong, the tendency is, okay, Judge X, explain why you did what you did. The judge is absolutely prohibited from explaining why he did uh, what she did unless it's in the bounds of the document that that judge prepares. He can't say, oh, really, what I was thinking was this, that, and the other. He can't do that without violating the principles that I've explained. And so if I hired another ombudsman, that person would have the same restraints that Mary Wisniewski has and the same restraints I have. All right. I uh, would like to open it up to questions for people. Tim, get ready for that. Uh, by the way, a little shout-out to Mary. She's also the author of one of the probably the greatest biography of Nelson Ogren, so I have to say that. I'm a that big is fan true. of Mary. That is true. Uh, that is true. a little shout-out. And uh, so if there, are there any questions? And he was a guy nobody would know about except for me. Yeah, and he lived right down the street. And he drank Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we have a question. Uh, oh, yeah, right back there. Yellow shirt. Hi, thanks so much, Chief Judge, for being here. My name is Kelly Garcia. I'm a reporter at Injustice Watch, actually. Oh, my good. new colleagues. Um. <laughs> um, so I actually have a question about the sub-circuit, or like in general, the judicial redistricting process. Okay. Um, so I know it's been 30 years since we drew up the sub-circuits in Cook County. So I'm curious what you think about how they've lived up to the vision of diversifying the bench, and also what you anticipate for the new map that legislators are supposed to write up. Okay, that's a fair question. And let me explain it this way. And the sub-circuit system she's talking about, as I, I'm sure most of you know, uh, for example, in Cook County, it's divided into 15 sub-circuits. And in, in those 15, um, uh, a judge, a full circuit court judge can be elected, the same as if the, that judge ran countywide. And the idea was to have sub-circuits because people were having difficulty running countywide and getting elected, particularly if they were minorities. Not just racial minorities or 
uh, ethnic minorities, but also minorities like Republicans in a, in a Democratic community like uh, Cook County. And so the idea was to divide these communities up into 15 sub-circuits so that everybody would have a chance. And they would go to, let's say, a Latinx community and draw the map so that it would increase the chances that somebody, a Latinx, could be elected from that particular sub-circuit. Or they could go to another sub-circuit and see what the religious community was. Maybe the community there was primarily Jewish. And so they drew the map so that somebody of, of the Jewish background could diversify the court by being elected there. Uh, and, and likewise for the African-American community and, and all of the various minority communities. But it hasn't worked out that way. And whether, uh, I, I say that anybody who can appeal to the community that elects that person, I say they are entitled to be elected, no matter what was intended. But um, one of the things that I do, and we are in the process right now of filling um, positions for associate judge. Associate judges are elected differently than my colleague uh, just mentioned. They are not uh, elected by the public directly. They are elected by full circuit court judges who are elected by the public. And the full circuit court judges elect, at a secret ballot, the associate judges. And, and the reason why I'm bringing that up is my watchword for this a large grouping of associate judges is I want the best and the brightest and the most diverse coming out of that system. And uh, that's what we have been able to produce. I can't control the ultimate vote. I, I mean, we, we choose them in the way that, that uh, I describe we're trying to, to do. Typically, <clears throat> if there are, let's say hypothetically, 20 positions open, Half of those would be minority, and half of those would be majority. Half of them would be women, half of them would be men. Uh, we would have a, a diversity of religious groups in there. And so that's what, if I had it my way, <clears throat> when they do redistrict, I would like to see that kind of thing emerging. But in communities <clears throat> that were supposed to produce uh, judges who were going to be African-American, we've had non-African Americans elected there. In communities where the candidate was supposed to be Asian-American, we've had non-Asian-Americans elected there, and so forth. So the, the public can decide wherever they want. But I, I applaud the good intentions. Mm -hmm. And that's what's, what was intended. And we work towards that. Um, there's a, there's a, a guy who's been writing books. And I'm, I'm told that there's a new uh, podcast or something in his name, I think the guy's name is Obama. But anyway, he kept talking about a society and a culture that was not yet through moving in the right direction. Yeah. And, and uh, that's what we, we, we aim for perfection, but we're nowhere near it. And we aim for it, we work for it, and we are committed to it. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah, we have time. Hi. Um, so I really have uh, two questions, so brief, brief answers. One is, isn't there something inherently problematic when it, with an elected judiciary? Um, and, if, and don't tell me that the people have the right to elect them because people don't pay any attention to the judicial races. And the other thing is, what is the process 
when there's a an issue with a judge and there's a complaint because I know I know that lawyers are more than reluctant to make complaints because then they're taxed in those courts. So is there a way to actually hear complaints and take action against judges who we know are having problems in their courtrooms? So two questions, two brief answers. Sure, okay. <clears throat> Let's take the first one first. Um, whether an elected uh, system is uh, a priori a bad system. Um, I say that if you're not going to let me appeal to the public and you want to have another system, let me be the one in that new system to choose who the judge is going to be. That's what I say. Because my trust is these people sitting out here. You. And there was a guy uh, who used to say this a long time ago. He said, anybody who was not good enough to be selected by somebody that he wanted to represent was not going to be a good representative. And that guy's name was Abraham Lincoln. And he called it um, the, the will of the people. And I respect that. I don't say it's perfect, and there may be a better system. Some say, well, okay, if you have merit selection of um, uh, judges, then under the merit selection system, the governors make the selection. How many governors from the state of Illinois have gone to jail? <laughs> ah, that's what I say. If you're not going to let the people select them, let me select them. Let, 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 let me say. And let's talk about the, the JIB and, and a good system there. Uh, it is supposed to be confidential. Uh, they don't even let a judge know who the complaining witness is. So if somebody's hesitating to complain against the judge because they think somebody's going to find out who the complaining witness is, no. Uh, the, the, the complaints are submitted, and they are per perfectly um, uh, anonymous. But the prosecution is made by the JIB representatives. They pr produce that, and they prosecute to a commission to remove the judge or to censure the judge or to whatever, whatever the allegation happens to be. And we have had judges who were censured. We've had judges removed. We've had judges uh, sanctioned. Um, and so it, it's a slow process, too slow for me. Because as I say, I have, and I can't hide my name when I send the same judges that I work with. But I do think it's a slow process, and I can understand, the, if you don't mind my saying, the kind of frustration that might emanate from such a question. I think it can be improved. Uh, let me just jump in before, and we reserve, on First Tuesdays, Ben and I always reserve the right to jump in with our own questions throughout the audience <laughs> Q&A as well. But since this issue was brought up about judicial elections, and since in my new role at Injustice Watch, I'm going to be helping create one of the uh, the only nonpartisan judicial election guide uh, that gets published uh, around judicial election time. Wonderful. So, so uh, the guide has been around for a few cycles now, and uh, it seems like that's helping generate more conversation around judicial elections, more awareness uh, around uh, around that part of the ballot. But one thing that uh, hasn't changed is that 
the committee to reelect judges continues to tell the public that they should just vote yes on everybody, that they should just vote yes to retain all judges. And uh, I'm curious to hear what you think about that. Uh, you know, since you have such such a great faith in the public, uh, why is the number one body that's there to promote the election of judges telling people to just vote yes for everybody? Well, um, first of all, I think that has changed. But let's talk about that for a moment. Why is it that the people don't know more about how to elect their judges? You know why? We are at the bottom of that ballot. And, and all the, the quote-unquote more important things are at the top. If you reversed it and, and let people vote for the judges at the top, they would know more about these judges. That's number one. Number two, there are separate evaluations for judicial candidates, and I'm glad Injustice Watch is going to do it. But We've been doing it. Yeah, you know, I, and, I, and I'm glad of that. But I'm just saying that's not the only source of it. The Chicago Bar, the um, Alliance of Bar Associations, the Illinois State Bar, the Women's Bar, the Cook County Bar, uh, all of them evaluate the judges. And you may agree or disagree with their evaluations, but it is there. But when you have, for example, I talked about retentions. Uh, when somebody, when we have a retention, it's usually no fewer than 50 or 60 people. And it's hard for everybody to know all about 50 or 60 people. I, I, I get that. Uh, but the answer was to not let them be retained by the typical election, 50% plus one. They have to get 60%. And we had um, judges voted out in the last cycle. Kilbride. Yeah, Kilbride. Uh, most people knew Justice Kilbride. He was voted out because he didn't get 60%. And so, yeah, it's cumbersome, and, and uh, it may not be the best system, as I said to my colleague here. But it is possible to, to do until we get something better. And I, I always aim for something better. Uh, and I hope there is a better one. But, but what I've heard trotted out as the answer, I know it's not the answer. I think we've kind of covered what I was going to say, but as a, as a voter, I find it incredibly overwhelming to vote for judges, like how to make an informed decision. Um, and I think what you were talking about earlier about how you're not allowed to talk about your thought process when you make decisions, yeah. it leaves us in the dark as voters on what we, how we evaluate how you've made your decisions. And so I, I'm glad to know about Injustice Watch now. And but I, but I do do a lot of research and try to find resources. And I was going to ask you what you thought we should do to be better informed. Um, I, and I appreciate that. And I know that, that is, it's not easy to know as much as you need to know about 60 people whose names you, you may not know or ever heard of. Uh, I realize that. But what you have done, the spade work, that's what I call it, is what it calls for. Until we can have something better, um, uh, I, I would say this, uh, the um, law bulletin, for example, if, if, if somebody doesn't want to go to 14 different bar associations, but you want all of the information in one place until Injustice Watch, the law bulletin printed every evaluation of every judicial candidate uh, before each election. Uh, who recommended against them? why and who recommended for them and why 
And so that's one way to do it. I mean, it's not the only way, and you can still do it as you have done it, where you go and look up each name and, 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 and check each judge out. But um, let me explain why they won't let us give our opinions on some things. You, you already understand? Okay, I was just going to say we're supposed to be impartial. And if we start talking about we like this kind of case and we don't like that kind of case or we don't like this kind of results or we do like that kind of results, uh, people could honestly say e Evans is not impartial. He's already given us his opinion on this. Why should he pretend that he's uh, unbiased? And, and you, uh, Maya mentioned earlier, and I don't think I had a chance to address it, uh, how we deal with uh, bias. Because as you say, some judges are biased. And uh, we, we call it implicit bias. And we say to all the judges who come before us, hey, whether you admit it or not, we say you have biases. We all have biases. But we want you to put your biases on the shelf when you make your decision. We, c we can't get inside your brain and say, oh, well, you like women more than men, or you like uh, uh, this ethnic group more than that ethnic group, or whatever. But whatever your biases are, we can't tolerate your exercising those biases in the decision that you make. And you take an oath to make your decision on the evidence, not your bias, and you apply the law to the evidence that comes out of that case. And that's, that's what we make them uh, take an oath on. And we look at their decisions to see whether their decisions are reflected in that oath. And that's the way we determine whether they are being biased by the fruit of it. Got a question? How you doing, Judge? Doing uh, fine. I have one question. I came across a, a email address called it's deporter at cookcountycourt.com. Reporter? So uh, deporter. Deporter. Okay. And there's supposed to be some sort of group that does surveys uh, for a uh, pro se litigants. I see. Are you familiar with? Not, not at all. It's the first time I've heard of it. It's only one of your pages. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, <laughs> we we publish um, whatever we can if it's if it's designed to help um, uh, certain people who are unrepresented. Is that what you're saying? Uh, at first, I thought that's what they were. Then I actually uh, saw that what they do is they send out surveys to pro se litigants and ask them a uh, number of questions. Oh, I see. So I won't. The other real, the real part of the question, I'm not trying to offend the court system or anybody else, but who stands up for the pro se litigants in the court? That's a fair question, too. Let me answer that. We train our judges specifically to help pro se litigants. Self, we call them self-represented litigants now. And we know, sir, as, as your question assumes, that more and more people end up having to represent themselves. And, for example, in the Domestic Relations Division, uh, people going through uh, divorce and custody battles, um, almost 50% of those people end up representing themselves at one point or another. Uh, in some other communities, it's higher than 50%. And so what we do is we try to provide them uh, help. We have kiosks attached to virtually every division where they can get free information, how to prepare their document, how to prepare a response, how to figure out 
uh, what date they have to respond, uh, how to figure out uh, how they can get free um, representation. For example, many of the bar associations for uh, indigent uh, litigants will represent them either free of charge or at a reduced cost. And we direct them to people who can represent them free, uh, who commit to do, doing so. And the Supreme Court requires, uh, as lawyers file their annual reports, that they say what volunteer services they have provided to people like we're talking about here. It's not that they, they, there is some uh, amount that they have to do, but they have to tell the Supreme Court what they have done, how many CLEs they've gone to, and how many people they have helped pro bono, you know, with, with, no, with no fee at all, that they volunteered to help somebody. And often these are people who couldn't otherwise have any representation at all. For example, if I, I hate to example everybody to death, but let me just, because evictions are, are an issue right now, we have free lawyers for tenants and landlords, and we urge them to come and get their case resolved outside of a contested uh, court proceeding. Maya talked about uh, what happens in court, and, and, and we now have, have a record. She's absolutely right. Before then, because it was a civil case, we didn't have a court reporter present. We usually can afford court reporters primarily to be in the criminal court side, but now we have a way for people to get access to that record. But in this system that I'm talking about, and this is one place, believe it or not, Ben, where uh, Prattwinkle, President Prattwinkle and I we'll talk about that, yeah. have issued a joint um, op-ed piece yeah. where we're urging tenants and landlords to take advantage of it. And, and here's what happens. Let's say uh, a, a landlord uh, wants to get rid of the tenant. We try to tell that if it is because the tenant can't pay, we talk about all this federal money that's out there. So if the landlord wants to get paid, the landlord can get paid. Mm. But some of the landlords want to get rid of the tenant, not get the money for uh, the tenant to stay. So we even deal with that. We'd like you to work with us. We'll settle this. We'll give the tenant an opportunity to leave and get another place to live without a judgment of eviction. You know what happens if you get a judgment of eviction, the next landlord doesn't want to, hire, doesn't want to welcome you either. So this gives the, the tenant a chance to leave voluntarily. It gives the landlord a chance to, to uh, bring in new tenants. They can get the money if they want to. The, the, the tenant can get the money. The landlord can get the money if they want to. And we help them negotiate. We provide free mediators, free lawyers, and uh, many of those cases are being resolved. And we urge them to do this between now and September 1st. Because Maya is correct, come September 1st, all of this free help will still be there, but the landlords will be in court to evict the person. So, um, and that's one thing, Ben, that, that uh, President Pretwinkle and I right, you, have worked you, together on. You mentioned on. President Pretwinkle, so uh, I was going to ask you this earlier, and I forgot. <laughs> I concentrated on Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Police Chief uh, David Brown, who you really have no relationship with whatsoever. I mean, they're different generations, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, President Pretwinkle, however, uh, people in the audience may not know this uh, judge, uh, ran against you twice, and I remember each election, and... Uh, and she defeat, finally defeated you as alderman in 91. 
do you think President uh, Tony Preckwinkle holds a grudge against you? Do you ever get a, side, a sense that she's sort of punishing uh, the judicial branch of Cook County because of an old Kenwood Fourth Ward grudge going back to the 80s and early 90s? Go ahead. Well, I, I hope not. I, I hope not. Um, we, we have been in a kind of perpetual battle for 30 or 35 years. Uh, I don't deny that. I don't think she would deny it. I respect her for it. She has a different point of view on some things than I have. And uh, so we, we've just agreed to disagree on some things. Uh, I, I, I kind of smile when, when Ben says that she defeated me on the, um, on the uh, third uh, match we had against each other. I defeated her the first two. The third match, um, I raised some issues, and she's not here to defend herself, but uh, I'll just say this. Um, one issue was in Hyde Park Kenwood, and all of you know about Hyde Park Kenwood, uh, your, your background, your, your ethnicity, your race, that doesn't, doesn't matter out there. But all of a sudden, during that race, up in the, up in the trees, there were signs signed by me uh, that said that I was against her because she had married a white guy in Hyde Park, Kenwood, like, <laughs> you know, and, and I had never seen these signs. Uh, my name was on it and all that. And so all of a sudden, her campaign manager was photographed by the local paper called the Hyde Park Herald up in the tree putting the, putting the signs up himself saying that they were being put up by me. And uh, so mystery, all of a sudden she wins the election. Uh, we didn't find out about it, and I still didn't see it, because, of course, I guess I'd be the last one to, to let them see uh, up in the tree. But, but um, in any case, we didn't find out about it until the election was scheduled about a week away. Her campaign manager, yeah. Alan Dobry, yeah. had to resign and step down. But the only people who knew about it was me and the Hyde Park Herald and all of her people. So, yeah, she won. And then I challenged that. And uh, when we got ready to, uh, I, I challenged it in court, and the appellate court said, you know what, Evans has raised some good points. And uh, we're going to give him a chance for a recount and, and so forth. So we went to, to uh, get the ballots, to recount the ballots. All the ballots were gone. I said, well, what about the applications for ballots? All the applications were gone. And nobody knew how this happened. And the only thing they knew was, well, Tim, uh, we'll settle with you. Uh, you can't be Alderman anymore. But that's, that's, the, that's the, the, the way we, our battles got started. And so I, I hope that all of that dust has settled and... and all of that, <laughs> but that's what happened. Yeah, that's a Chicago politics no, deep on. cut. Yeah. <laughs> so, so some of these commissioners out here, this is news to them. They thought Tony Preckwinkle walked on water. You know, uh, President Preckwinkle. Oh, I know they agree with her on everything. Let me just see those faces. Yeah, yeah, I mean, oh, oh, wait. wait. <laughs> uh, we got a question over anyway, here. We got a question. Hi, um, thank you so much for being here tonight, Judge, and for your time. Yes, ma'am. Um, so the presiding judge of the Domestic Violence Division, Raul Vega, has been a consistent obstacle to survivors of gender-based violence. Will you, if he continues to refuse to, to implement the changes that the community is asking for, will you meet with the community and remove him? Well, uh, I, hate to, I hate to even think about removing a judge, but yes, ma'am. 
and I've already talked to him. As you may know, <clears throat> that was an issue raised in the county board on Thursday, um, and uh, I, we vacated the order that he entered. And I have submitted a series of changes reversing much of what his, his order called for. And I said to him, hey, uh, there have been some calls for you to be removed. But I'm a second chance guy. I said, look, we're going we're gonna, to um, change all these. We're going to do what the advocate, the advocates are working free of charge. We don't pay them. They help these, these residents who need help. And we're going to work with the advocates. And um, uh, we'll see whether he, he does or not. I, I hope he does. He says that he will. Uh, I think he's a decent guy. But somebody said to me, well, maybe there's some misogynism going on. I can't tolerate that in my court. I already said I stand for fairness and diversity and all that. And I talked to him about that. What I'm saying to you, I normally wouldn't say to you if, if this was behind his back. But what I say to you, I said to him. And we vacated his order. And, and we're going to implement what I think the advocates want for our people. And these are people who, um, I, you know, I've been a judge a long time. And I've been talking about 20 years as a chief judge. But I'm almost there for 30 years if... if uh, Ben can believe it. Um, when I was the presiding judge of the Domestic Relations Division, I saw these people coming in to me. And we used to have to operate at 13th and Michigan. Elevators so small you couldn't get more than four people in there. And one would be the victim and the other would be the perpetrator. They had to ride up on the elevator with the same guy they were coming down there to testify against. In the waiting room, the same. The, the rooms were so small that we had to let the victims stay outside until their case was called. And of course, the perpetrator would be right there, threatening them in the hallway. So once I became chief judge, I changed all that. We established the first in the country, a standalone domestic violence court at 555 West Harrison, a separate elevator for victims separated from the perpetrator separate waiting room for the victim separated from the perpetrator and all those kinds of things. I'm not going to do all that and then have a presiding judge that I appointed treat people wrongly. I'm not going to have it. And I, I, I know it's a sensitive question and I'm telling you we're gonna, if he's, he's going to follow this new order and treat people differently or we'll have to have a change. And if you ask people, well, will Tim Evans do that? He's, ben says, well, wait a minute, Evans has to come to these people and ask them to vote for him. When I was trying to change bail reform, I tried and tried and tried until I removed all of those judges in, in bail reform, put all new judges in there, named a new presiding judge, and established a new division. So what I'm telling you, I've done before, because i got to get it done. i got to get it done, and I know I'm right about it. Judge, we really appreciate, you know, I think everyone here really appreciates you making time to speak about issues like this. Um, I know you can't speak on uh, current or impending cases, but um, I think Meyer Ben can probably help me understand this a little better. There's a guy who's talking about coming before the court, uh, Blagojevich, I think his name is. Blagojevich? 
Is that how you say? You've talked about self-representation. You've talked about former Illinois governors. You can't comment on that? Okay, I have a separate question. <laughs> Rod Blagojevich? No, we haven't heard of this guy? Um, you talked earlier about uh, resources available to law enforcement and how uh, something should be made more available, perhaps. Um, if you could talk a little more in depth on that and specifically how it might relate to an impending uh, mayoral election, as I'm sure crime will be a big issue in that election, if we have one, God willing. Well, God willing as well. I, you know, I, I think a good example would be um, what just happened in New York, if you, if you followed them. They had the same kind of uh, uh, violence. They had the same kind of situation. And you had progressives running for that position in the Democratic primary. And um, it was a different system that they had, of course. But the guy who talked about resources and not just more law enforcement, uh, and I don't know him, I never met him, but he's the guy who won. So what, what I'm talking about, the resources here are needed. And, and I, I would hope whoever the next mayor is, uh, <laughs> uh, let me put that another way. Uh, <laughs> Uh, whoever gets elected mayor, uh, I hope that they will put as much emphasis on resources as they put on law enforcement and, and all of that uh, kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not putting law enforcement people down. I'm just saying that's not, the, that's not the answer. That's just, at best, a part of the answer. Thank you. Any other questions? Anybody got any other questions? Well, so I'll ask one if there's no hands up right away, but uh, I'm wondering, since you talked about the, uh, the presiding judge of the domestic violence um, division, this week uh, your office announced that people will now also be able to file, or moving forward, the, the, you guys are working on allowing people to file um, uh, requests for orders of protection. Um, Restraining orders, basically, 24-7. Yes. So currently, people have to do this before the courts close every day. So sometimes as early as, like, 3 p.m., people have to ask for that order of protection from the judge. Otherwise, the courts close, and then people might be stuck back in their, in, at home with the person that's abusing them yeah. uh, overnight, and oftentimes people don't come back. So uh, what had to happen? I mean, advocates have been talking about this for years, and uh, now it's, it's kind of interesting that... Finally, this is going to be available to people uh, just as uh, court has moved online and judges are now in, you know, on, on Zoom and able to, 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 to preside over the courtrooms from wherever they are. Uh, did that have something to do with why uh, your office was able to uh, push forward with this now? Um, what, were, what happened behind the scenes to make that possible finally? Well, I've been talking about it for the last 10 years and um, we had it on our agenda uh, as uh, oh, I, I, I checked the record 2012 for example we were trying to get it and um, people were saying well Tim you're the only one who wants it um, the uh, advocates don't want it um, they quoted someone that was a, a person and this person never told me this but this is what was quoted to me that was an organization which was called the Battered Women Network and I thought maybe they would be supportive of it. And I was told that maybe not. I don't know. But anyway, uh, I've been pushing for it for the last uh, decade. And um, I think 
that we should be able to do it. Now, um, one of the issues, and your, your question once again is a fair one, and, and I'll, I'll try to explain what people said to me was the reason why I shouldn't be for it. Um, it would require that my employees work around the clock. That is to say, they'd have to work, uh, let's say, 9 to 5, and then 5 to 11, and then 11 to 8 in the morning or something like that. And uh, I said, yeah, fine. We have people who do that now. For probable cause hearings, for example, um, the police department has to, if they're going to uh, uh, charge somebody, they have to do it within a certain number of hours. And so because of that, I have judges who work around the clock. We just give them a different schedule. And so that's what I'm talking about here. I think we can do the same thing for uh, domestic violence orders of protection. And um, I think that uh, those who might oppose us, uh, I think we can explain to them why we need it. There was a time, and I started to, to answer this, and, and I go on too long, I know, but she asked me a legitimate question about domestic violence. And I, I was going to say, when I first got into this business, we had some people with a domestic violence order of protection in their purse on the day they were killed. They were getting killed because of what was going on. The police would show up and say, oh, well, you all are married, you got children, work this out, and the police would leave. And so we've had to change an, an awful lot over time. And I say, we can't afford that anymore. And if somebody needs an order of protection after hours, after 4 o'clock, after 5 o'clock, I want them to be able to get that order of protection. And um, I think we could, we could do it. I hope we can get support. I'm, I'm glad the commissioners are here. I, I said to Commissioner Gaynor, and uh, we should, uh, is it all right to have the commissioners stand? I'm, I'm pointing at them and I'm talking to them. Can we just uh, ask them to just raise their hands and they're here and they're giving them a round of applause. I appreciate it. Because I'm going to have to come back to them and, and say, because people are telling me, hey, the unions are not going to be up, they're, they're going to be upset, they're not going to go along with having to work around the clock and all of that. But um, I, I, I saw what happened when we didn't deal with domestic violence right. And I think we have to keep going until we get it right. And um, Miami-Dade already has what I'm talking about. Um, L.A. County has what I'm talking about. Um, Harris County has it in, in uh, Texas. Dallas County has it in Texas. Uh, so I'm not talking about something totally foreign. I think we can do it here. Now, I'm not pretending that nobody's going to object. I guess there will be somebody objecting. But I think we have to fight until we can get it done. And uh, we got some advocates here who I think will join us. And um, we'll try to explain people, this might be your family that needs this help. It's not always going to be somebody else. These people who were getting killed were some were rich, some were poor, some were this ethnic group, some were that racial group. So it could happen to anybody. And I think we need to, these are our residents, and we need to protect them on a 24-7 basis. We also do it not just for probable cause hearings, but we do it for search warrants. You, you hear about search warrants. Somebody can get a search warrant any time of the day or night. So if we can get search warrants, and we can give juvenile justice, I mean, um, uh, presiding, uh, the, the presiding judge who handles those, those uh, probable cause hearings uh, to issue them around the clock, we can do this for domestic violence.
close it down. Yeah, do you have one more question? Anything you've been dying got, to ask could, for 30 years? Uh, well, I do have one more question that I've been dying to ask for 30. Oh, my God, I can't believe you said that. And uh, so this is a question. Uh, I, I call this the Monroe Anderson question. I endeavor to my dear friend, Monroe Anderson, who's not here, but will be listening to the recording. And he wanted me to ask you this question. All right. Now, you know Monroe Anderson. He was uh, Eugene Sawyer's press secretary. I do. I do He's a dear friend of mine. And he and I are reliving every day. We talk about it all the time. 1989, Evan Sawyer. Okay. And... Uh, it's a mayoral I, race? It's a mayoral race. I know I have to do this for the younger people. But this was a moment where uh, Chicago's black community was deeply divided. And politically speaking, hasn't been the same, Judge Evans, since that moment. I think that's fair. Daily, 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 daily. <laughs> Never voted for him once, Judge Evans. <laughs> uh, followed by Ron. So, do you have any regrets about uh, not just immediately supporting Eugene Sawyer, after uh, he was victorious that night, that tumultuous night in December of 1987, do you have any regrets where you look back and you go, you know what, I should have just said, Gene, you're my friend, and I'm supporting you, and let's do this together. Thoughts on that? And let me let me talk about that a little bit. It's, it it is a uh, a sensitive question, and I should I should rush to say this. Gene and Gene Sawyer and I were the best of friends before this dilemma and after, before he died. We, we reconciled on that issue. But um, what happened, and I know young people here don't, don't have any direct fam familiarity with it, but uh, you heard Ben say that I was Harold Washington's floor leader. And for much of his term, we had to fight the Vidoliac 29. And they were diametrically opposed to all that we were trying to do. And these are the people who elected Sawyer December. And these are the people I told Sawyer, hey, all they're trying to do is to stop me. They're not for you. And I told that to Gene. And, and I must say this, Gene and I discussed what would happen December 1st and December 2nd. There was to be no election that night, and we were going to see who the community preferred, because he was popular, and some said I was popular, and we said, we'll leave it to the community. And that's the way I came to that meeting. And I told Gene in 89, which is two years after the... Uh, election that, that put him in the office in the first place. I said, Gene, they're not going to support you. Take a look at all of the, um, the polls, and the, and the polls were being produced then. It went like this. Sometimes it was Evans, Daly, Sawyer. Sometimes it was Daly, Evans, Sawyer, but Sawyer always was at the bottom. He could not win. He had the money. I had no money. He had the money, but he could not win. And I said, well, Gene, you were right with me. You were part of the Harold Washington uh, 21. We had 21, and Vidoliak had 29. I said, don't you want to see, whether it's me or you, don't you want to see Harold's programs continue? 
and I could not get him. He said, well, I'm, 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 I'm mayor, and, uh, you know, I'm going to be mayor. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win. I said, well, how, how can you win? These are objective polls that show you losing, whether you're losing to me or losing to, to uh, uh, Daly. Now, what most people don't know is I dropped out of the race at a time when I was above the, ra uh, the race with Sawyer. I dropped out of the race, so it wouldn't be Sawyer and Evans splitting the vote. I dropped out and ran in the general election against Daly. I didn't run in the primary election against Sawyer. So I did drop out so Sawyer could have it to himself. He saw he didn't get as many votes as I got in the general election. You might ask, well, how many votes did you get, Tim? 428,000. That's how many I got. And that's twice what they get now to elect the mayor. So I did mine. I did mine. And uh, Gene and I, after it was over, we reconciled. Um, we were the best of friends again. And, was, and the same way with Daly, by the way. I was friends with Daly before the election. And uh, now that he's no longer the mayor, we're, we're friends again. Uh, I wish them well. I disagreed with them vehemently. But you, know, you can probably tell I don't, I'm not a, a, sh a shrinking violent. I don't sit quietly. Uh, and I told them what I disagreed with them on. And, and uh, I still feel the same way. I, I, I thought neither guy was the person for the job. And I said so, and I outlined why in 89 against Gene and um, uh, later in 89 against Daly. And, and uh, there we are. Well, All thank right. you so much. This, uh, this has been an enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for sharing with us, for coming out, for being close with the people. Um, and thank you all for coming out as well. Uh, we really appreciate seeing you all. And um, our plan is to keep going with these patio shows um, as long as the CDC guidance doesn't change too drastically and uh, it's not too cold out here. So uh, you all follow The Hideout and us on social media. Uh, First Tuesdays with Maya and Ben has a Facebook page as well, so give us a follow, and we post information on there about our, our shows that are coming up. So stay tuned for news about the September show, which will be on the 7th. And, uh, yeah, thank you all for coming out, and thank you, Judge Evans. Thank you.